Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I am from Past Gas by Donut Media, the Internet's number one automotive history show. That's right. We talk car history. And this week we are talking about a lesser known underappreciated, underrated, undermentioned tuning house called Tommy Kyra. If you're deep into the JDM world, you know these guys. But for those of you who don't, Tommy Kyra is responsible for some of the most understated and just cool tuner cars out there. They had a really interesting philosophy on how they built their cars. Originally, one of the founders sold AMG and other European sports cars through his dealership in Japan and decided to take that same ethos with domestic Japanese vehicles, and they ended up with some really, really cool stuff. This is a cool story. This was a fun one, really just goofy time with James and Joe. So go check that out. Tommy Kyra on Past Gas, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the show today. Thank you. Bye. November 1952, Phil Hill and co-driver Arnold Stubbs arrive in Mexico City. They're not here to enjoy a pombazo in Coyozacan or float down the straits of Xochimilco. No, the young Californians are here to acclimate themselves to the narrow cobbled roads before they enter the third ever Carrera Panamericana. This grueling race runs from the Mexico-Guatemala border all the way north to Juarez, the nine-stage, 1,933-mile course is peppered with every hazard imaginable. It was already known as one of the deadliest races in the world. But as Benjamin Franklin once said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And Phil Hill was preparing to win. The guys stumble upon a garage at the edge of town and find six Ferraris being prepped for the race. Over the next few days, Hill and his co-driver take his borrowed Ferrari 212 Export on canyon roads outside of Mexico City, testing the limits of the Barchetta, Italian for tiny boat. During one run, they roll up behind a Pontiac station wagon. The wagon takes off, whipping and sliding through the turns at insane speeds. In Phil's words, the quote, idiot Pontiac was all arms and elbows. The two cars play cat and mouse on the twisties for a bit before Hill notices who's in the driver's seat. It's no loco local. It's actually world-famous race car driver Alberto Ascari. How did the nervous son of a postmaster and hymn composer 
become one of the most talented race car drivers of all time. Why did he leave racing near the peak of his career? What unfortunate event led him to winning a world championship? And what the heck is a Pombazo? I want to know. Today on Pass Gas, part one of the story of Phil Hill and the 1961 Formula One season. What is a pombazo? I have no idea. It sounds delicious, whatever it is. It's the best thing I've ever eaten in all of my life. It's a torta, but they dip the bread in red sauce oh, and yes. then they griddle it so it's really Ooh. crispy. Oh, wait. And then they, they take pastor and they shave it and put it on the grill with cheese so it all becomes one clump. It's like a And then it's sandwich? shredded lettuce. Yeah, it's so good. Amazing. I've had that before. I don't know. Did, I think you turned me on to that, Joe. I, I bought it for you, I think, during <laughs> a football game or you something. Did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. so good. Wow. <laughs> wow. Joe, did was... you put that in the script to get to the point where like we would just mention that you're a good friend of Nolan? Like, oh, this <laughs> yeah. will lead down. No, I completely really. forgot about that. <laughs> a really roundabout way of getting mm-hmm. there. Those are the only specifics I remember from uh, when my sister lived in Mexico City and she lived in Coyacan. We ate a pambazo and then we went to Xochimilco. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, write what you know, I guess. That's, yeah. the, that's the stuff. Welcome back to Past Gas, everybody. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined by my co-hosts. A lot of co-hosts in this one. We got uh, Joe Weber and his pambazo. Keep it pambazo. Uh, James Pumphrey is here at the studio. Get off the roof. And another one of my co-hosts from the Donut Racing Show to help us talk about Phil Hill. We have Elizabeth Blackstock, one of the authors of Racing with Rich Energy. Welcome to Pass Gas, Liz. Thanks, fellas. Thanks for having me out from Texas. Hey, yeah, we're all in the same, uh, definitely in the yep. same studio. Yeah, yep. we're in the same studio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're going to be talking about Phil Hill, probably one of the most legendary names in Formula One. Uh, very excited to learn about this guy and hear this story. Uh, this, uh, the, our main source for this episode is The Limit, Life and Death on the 1961 Grand Prix Circuit by Michael Cannell. So check that book out if you want even more info after you're done with this two-parter. We're going back to a two-parter. Uh, it's been a while since we've done one of those. We did a five-parter on the Hells Angels one time. Yeah, it started and with the invention of the wheel. <laughs> before you understand the Hells Angels, you need to understand man's want to move. Look, it was early <laughs> on in the pandemic. Um, I, I feel like I was padding for time, maybe. I don't know. That could have been a two-parter. I think I think it uh, with the other writer, you guys had sold a five-part series without a lot of research without, yes, up top. Yes. But we're not hating on you because it's it's fun to do series because you're invested in it more. But man, I was like in the the depths with yeah. the Hell's Angels. You know, like I read you know read the uh, Hunter Thompson book, watched a lot of Hell's Angels documentaries. You bought a Harley. <laughs> yeah, I you almost peed on your jacket. I I mean I did that, but that was not necessary. It, but yeah, very no. depressing time. Not an uplifting story. You insulted um, my old lady. Yeah. You got really <laughs> yeah. into it. You went full Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. That's why Hunter got beat up. 
Yeah, Nolan beat right. up Hunter Wasn't S. Thompson. It? Oh no, he was he was defending an old lady. Yeah, uh, yeah. and the guy yeah. who's like, hey, maybe yeah. don't like punch your wife in the face, <laughs> yeah. and then they like, he's like, hey, what'd you mean? say to me? My wife. Yeah, <laughs> that's what. Ha- yeah, and then they uh, beat him. Uh, anyway, we're not talking about Hunter S. Thompson or the Hell's Angels or any other motorcycle club out there. We're talking about Phil Hill. So how about we uh, just get into it? Joe, you did a lot of research for this episode, for these two episodes. You wrote you wrote both of them, so you're going to be able to yeah. give us a lot of uh, uh, insight, insight into the story. I highly recommend this book, uh, The Limit, Life and Death on the 1961 Grand Prix Circuit. Elizabeth read it as well. It's... Mm-hmm. Very compelling. It's such a it paints such a good picture of what racing was back then. Uh, so this is adapted from that book. It's really good. Go check it out. If you've not read it, like that's the book you give to people who don't know anything about racing to get them yeah. into racing. Mm. I got. I my parents are reading it right now for oh, my awesome. suggestion. Whoa, <laughs> that's high praise. Joe's parents, <laughs> lovely people, and now hopefully big motorsports fans by the end of the, by the time they finish that book. Listen, if Elizabeth says to read a book, I'm going to think about reading the book because Elizabeth's <laughs> written a book. Yeah. Don't read that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even read a book. You wrote a whole book? Jeez Louise. <laughs> I'll try and keep it together. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we start, I uh, just want to give a special happy birthday to our listener, Elliot. It's his 13th birthday. Big shout out, Elliot. Uh, have fun with it. 13. A big man, one. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, if you have a birthday or a loved one has a birthday coming up and you want a shout out, email Nolan's personal email, <laughs> Mrs. Harry Styles at Gmail. Yeah. That's Mrs. There spelled out M I S S E S S Harry Styles. At gmail.com. It's a real email address. And we'll see what you can do. 13 was great. You know, that's when you're going into seventh grade or you're in seventh grade. 14 was rougher for me. Eighth grade was a very bad time in Nolan's life. Dude, don't let Elliot know that. I'm (laughs) about to turn 14. Good luck, luck, Elliot. (laughs) No, I mean, there's, you know, yeah, this is when you start kind of like you have good years and bad years, I think. And that's part of growing up. It's when you start questioning God. Start questioning God. You start getting serious about, you know, romance. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, hangovers hurt more. <laughs> That's <laughs> really fun time, though. So enjoy it. Uh, enjoy being a teenager. It'll fly by. Uh, but in- just enjoy your time, man. You don't have a lot of responsibilities. And guess what? Nothing yeah. really matters right now. It's man. great. Don't even sweat yeah. it. I wish I was a teen. I wish I was a teen, but I had my job. I think if you were a teenager and you had this job, you you wouldn't realize how how awesome it was. Well, I want to be you know? a teenager, but in like a, I made a wish at a carnival <laughs> kind of way. So like okay. I have all of my knowledge, memories, and wisdom, mm-hmm. but like more of like a second chance to relive the past twenty years. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Phil Hill was born on 420, 1927 in Dude, Miami, Florida, but oh, he yeah. moved to California. While he was still young, uh, his father was postmaster general of Santa Monica, and his mother composed hymns for publication. And they despised each other. The two would scream at one another across the dinner table as Phil and his siblings watched on. Needless to say, Phil used any excuse to get out of his parents' house. He found refuge in the garage, where he became obsessed with his family's cars. Quote, I was born a car nut. Really a mental case. 
Bill said of himself. In California, Santa Monica. <laughs> Love it. He would study the engine and wires under the hood of his mother's Marmon Speedster. Dude, have you seen the new Marmon? <laughs> <laughs> a family friend propped him up with pillows on their Oldsmobile so he could drive, with his feet barely able to reach the pedals. When the family went picnicking in Oxnard, the nasty nard, Phil goaded his dad into driving 80 miles per hour down a hill. He recalls. Stuff was blowing out of the car, and my mother was screaming like, bloody murder. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Is that good? Is that how he talks? Yeah, sure. Phil and his friends would sit on San Vicente Boulevard and challenge each other to name. (laughs) This is the most geographical script we've ever. I love it. I love it. It's such an L.A. native script. Very California. (laughs) Californians. Uh, yeah, so they'd sit on San Vicente Boulevard and challenge each other to name every single car that passed quicker than the others. Phil always won. When he was being driven home from a birthday party with all of his friends in a 1933 Chevy sedan, he paid the driver and all the other passengers a quarter apiece so he could shift for the driver. Doesn't seem like you need to pay your friends off <laughs> yeah, to I, do I, that, right? <laughs> it's like the, this is the 30s. What else did they have to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, in 1933, a quarter was like $500,000 today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Millions of dollars. Phil couldn't wait to get into the driver's seat. Quote, It was as if I was trying to divorce myself from the presence of people around me and focus only on cars. That's deep. The obsession provided a convenient escape from the toils of family life at home. So... You know, there's nothing like a dysfunctional family to convince you to become a race car driver mm-hmm. yeah. or anything successful. Really? I think like True. you got to go hard one side or hard on the other with the family, like either really dysfunctional or like, you know, like very nepotistic, whatever, you know, like either your parents are like doing your career for you yeah. or they they're you. screaming at each other across the dinner table so much exactly. so that you pay people to like cars. <laughs> <laughs> Let me shift. Hey, Daniel in the back seat. I'm going to give you a quarter so I can shift up here. <laughs> uh, if there was one family member that Phil loved dearly, it was his Aunt Helen. She didn't have any children of her own, so she treasured the time she spent with her nieces and nephews. Phil became her favorite, though, and the two bonded over their shared love of cars. Phil was fascinated by Helen's Pierce Arrow LeBaron convertible town cabriolet. One of the longest (laughs) names in the history of automobiles. Painted a beautiful two-tone blue, the car had piano-finished wood interior, a lamb's wool rug, and a beaver skin lap robe. Phil's childhood friend George (laughs) Hirsch. What's a lap robe? (laughs) It's basically like a dam that the beaver builds around you so you don't fly out of the car. That's sick. That's cool. No, I just I'm just kidding. I have no idea what it is. Lap robe is probably belt? like a blanket for the car. Oh, uh, yeah. I thought it. I thought it was like a seatbelt for some reason. I don't think they had seatbelts back then. No, they, I, I thought it was like a beaver tail that kept you in your car. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, yeah, I think James is correct. I think it is like a a, a blankie for the car, which yeah, honestly needs to make a comeback. Well, now that you we don't have, have a car seats. blanket, I don't I have a car blanket. I live in Texas. I have a car blanket. <laughs> I got a car blanket, but it lives in the trunk and it's not beaver skin. It's kind of like, it's more utilitarian. It's more of a a ground covering in case I want an impromptu picnic. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, beaver skin lap robe sounds like a action Bronson alias. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Phil's childhood friend, George Hurst Jr., grandson of media tycoon William Randolph Hearst, mm. said Phil was in awe of that car. We all were. Helen was walking down Figueroa Street in downtown Los Angeles when she spotted a used Ford Model T. She bought it for 12-year-old Phil for a tidy sum of $40. The kid was ecstatic when the Model T came rumbling up his driveway, but his father disapproved. He forbade Phil from driving it on public roads. Good, because he's 12. Luckily, <laughs> his friend George Hurst Jr.'s family had an estate in the Santa Monica Mountains with plenty of private roads for the boys to hone their driving skills on. Dang. Is this this Jimmy life story? <laughs> It is. William Randolph Hearst at the time, I think, is like one of the wealthiest men in America. Yeah. Dude, Citizen Kane is based on him. Yeah. You know the Celebrity Center in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that used to be like a tiny ranch house owned by this silent film actor. But he went on a boat with William Randolph Hearst and Hearst found him like with his mistress, with Hearst's mistress. Oh. And the dude like never came back. So uh-huh. Hearst built that house for the guy's widow. So she would like be quiet whoa i didn't know that story i because yeah. it's like it's like 20 stories like it's, it's like huge the, it's like a big hotel and then there's a tunnel going across this the under the street to the apartment next door mm-hmm. where the help stayed and then where ucb is now on franklin is where UCB the stables, stables were and all the horses yeah when they say at late at night you can still hear the screams of the horses? I thought you were going to say... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought you meant... I thought you were going to say you can hear, still hear the clip-clapping of, uh, yeah. of horseshoes on the street. Phil, George, and their friends learned how to push their vehicles to the limit, sliding around corners and diving late into turns. Phil pushed his car above and beyond, but always had a mature sense of caution when driving, always knowing when to walk it back before things got too hairy. I like that. Me too. You hate hair. The Ford was yeah, also covered the first in car... Yeah, the Ford was also the first car Phil learned how to wrench on. The Hill family chauffeur. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the okay. Hill family chauffeur, Louis, acted as a mentor and teacher during this time. When a connecting rod on a piston broke, Louis guided young Phil through their repair process. While his friends were off playing baseball, Phil was scrounging around his mansion <laughs> working on cars. A relatively quiet and humble kid, Phil said of himself, I've always expressed myself via the automobile. I guess I sensed I was in an insane environment and that my only escape was in something that had structure. Cars give me a sense of worth. I could do something. Drive. No one else my age could do. I could take cars apart too. And when I put the nuts and bolts back together again and the thing worked... No one can prove me wrong. That kind of technology was fathomable. Makes sense in a way people never did. Cars are easy to master. They hold no threat. And if you're careful, they can't hurt you like people can. Wow. That's deep. What a quote. <laughs> That's a British accent Messed now. up, huh? It's when I learned that he was rich. I oh, thought I that he might have a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> That is a really sad, deep quote. This guy had some issues. Phil Hill. (laughs) 
be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Although Phil was from a well-to-do family, he wasn't afraid of work and loved getting his hands dirty. He got a job pumping gas and saved up enough money to buy a few project cars, a 1926 Chevy and a 1940 Packard, and started tinkering. Phil's natural gift for anything mechanical showed, as he rebuilt transmissions, upgraded flywheels, supercharged and hot-rided his cars out. Now old enough to drive on city streets, he would cruise down San Fernando Road and Sepulveda, (laughs) waiting for someone to rev their engine at him at a stoplight. Quote, We had our little signs, Phil said. He would rev back, and you know the rest. When he wasn't drag racing, he would cruise the canyons on the outskirts of L.A. or drag race at a dry lake bed called El Mirage. Phil dreamed of driving foreign cars. He would read British race publications front to back. Autocar, Motorsport Magazine, with stories of Juan Manuel Fangio, Alberto Ascari, and Luigi Villaresi in their harrowing races all over Europe. He grew to idolize the racers and their cars. It was the first time he was exposed to Maseratis, Ferraris, and Triumphs. After high school, Phil was accepted into USC and began classes, but that didn't last very long. He didn't want to study business. He wanted to work on cars. Quote, The limit of my ambition was someday to become mechanic to a great racing driver, he said. So, in 1947, Phil dropped out of USC to be... A mechanic. Obviously, his family disapproved. His father considered being a mechanic a last resort job. Undeterred, Phil found a job as a junior mechanic, or stooge as they were called, for the Marvin Edwards Midget Car Racing Team. The race team mechanic gig was only once or twice a week, so Phil got another job as mechanic and salesman for International Motors, selling Mercedes, Jaguars, and MGs to rich celebrities. Phil was a pretty bad salesman, but he became even more familiar with the small European roadsters he read about in the car mags. He would like step on his own foot because he got so excited about the specs and the Yeah, he'd just be spewing facts at people and that's not what they came in for. <laughs> no <laughs> like cares. trying to sell you a car. That's probably what I would do. Like, I, I found I was doing that. Uh, we had the a lucid air in the office mm. 
And we had a couple visitors um, the week we had that. And I would, anytime someone even looked at the car, I'd be like, did you know uh, it's, it's got massage and air conditioned seats? It's got 1,050 horsepower. Uh, the, gla- the roof is all glass. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I would just do that. And they're like, cool, man. Oh. Uh, <laughs> is your dad here? Are you allowed to be here? Yeah. <laughs> During this time, Phil bought an MG for $2,000 and entered his first official race. Phil put up a fight in his first outing and finished right behind his boss. It was enough for Phil to get the bug, and soon after, he was racing any chance he could. He turned out to be a much better driver than salesperson and would regularly beat BMWs, Austins, Simcas, and Morris Miners in his MG, earning four to 500 bucks per win. Big money. That is. That is like $6,000 in today. Yeah, I mean, I can't even think of any amateur racing series that gives that kind of prize money usually it's like enough to cover your fuel to get to the event and that's like it yeah you pay for the pleasure of being there yeah more often than not on this podcast the drivers we highlight have unfettered confidence blind ambition and drive like they have nothing to lose phil was different he had a lot to lose an inherently (laughs) anxious guy he would regularly vomit before his races because of nerves he had a fragility to him Unlike other drivers who are boisterous, eccentric, and known for their outward aggression, Phil was known for being quiet and nice. He had a sweet smile and was humble compared to his peers, basically the Nolan of the 1950s. His sensitivity would be a theme in his racing career and also his Achilles heel. While he was working as a mechanic for the Marvin Edwards midget car racing team, Phil got the break he needed, just not the one that he expected. During a race, one of the team drivers broke his leg, and Phil volunteered to take his place. He drove exceptionally well and earned a regular spot as a driver on the team. The other team members would razz Phil over his love of European roadsters, which were wildly different from the midget cars that he was racing. <laughs> this guy likes nice cars. What a uh, jerk. You like nice cars? <laughs> what do you think? You're nice? <laughs> you ever try driving in a circle? <laughs> <laughs> Your car is not even a derogatory term. (laughs) (laughs) They would call the drivers teabaggers, which really upset Phil, as those were his heroes than the cars he dreamed of driving. During a particularly distressing argument with team members, Phil quit. The commitment to to your your race car bit, honestly. (laughs) The, The teabaggers would call midget car racers circle burners. Would they? I feel like teabaggers is worse. Teabaggers yeah. is pretty Circle rough. burner sounds sick. Yeah, teabaggers yeah. is, yeah, sir, I'm a circle burner. That's sick as, sick as hell. Phil decided it was now or never to follow his dreams of working on and racing European roadsters, so he convinced his boss to send him abroad so he could learn to work on Jaguars. And it worked. In 1949, Hill moved from Los Angeles to Leamington Spa a town 20 miles south of Coventry, England. Where are my Coventry people at? So you know where Coventry is? It's 20 miles south of that. Yeah. Uh, where, the ja- <laughs> where the Jaguar plant was located. Oh, yeah. So the Jaguars in Coventry. Uh, now a spry 22 <laughs> years old, Phil got off the train in England and shook his hands with a man who would end up leading the Jaguar team to five victories at Le Mans. A man named Lofty England. Huh. I love to be named after the place that I live. My name's John America. Well, like, his (laughs) name is Lofty, too. So it's like... 
That's Pinky's yeah. out names. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Lofty England, yeah. Lofty England. I'll take my tea at noon, love. <laughs> <laughs> the experience of being an apprentice to master mechanics was invaluable to Phil. He spent a month at a time building and tuning engines and reworking suspension on not only Jaguars, but Rolls Royces and MGs too. The break from racing did wonders for his mental health as well. As winter turned into spring in England, Phil recalled it was so beautiful and serene that he would never get tense or nervous again. The tranquility wouldn't last long, though. The 1950 Formula One season kicked off, and conveniently, the opening race of the season was at Silverstone, just a short jaunt from where Phil was staying. Since he was about to leave England, Phil jumped at the chance to see some of his heroes live in the flesh. The event would the event would be even more meaningful than he expected, as it was the first Formula One championship after World War II, and Silverstone had been a British airbase during the war. As a result, 100,000 fans flocked to the British Grand Prix. King George and Queen Elizabeth attended. She is so old. <laughs> and they shook hands with all 26 drivers. The air was electric as Phil scanned the paddock and watched closely as race teams scrambled to tune their cars before the race. In the pits, he spotted one of his favorites, Italian driver Nino Farina. He was a casual and confident driver who sang to himself while he drove and waved to the crowd while passing on the streets. Nino won the race that day and would later go on to win the driver's championship. He was everything Hill wasn't, but seeing Nino win at Silverstone lit a fire deep inside of him. A few weeks later, Phil's visa expired and he was forced to go back to Santa Monica. Bummer, dude. It sucks here. Dude, I can't believe I got to go back to Santa Monica, dude. I've got to go down to the boardwalk now. <laughs> got to go to the freaking pier and ride the Ferris wheel, dude. Oh, man, dude. Ah, oh, dude, we gotta go to Bungalow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Free, uh, uh, Lewis's brother uh, reserved a table. It costs like a thousand dollars, and each additional yeah. person is a, a hundred fifty. I don't even want to go, but I gotta go to Bungalow. You gotta go to Bungalow. Let's go you get gotta- a murder at Hanano's. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta go to Bungalow, dude. Uh, so you had to go back to Santa Monica, which sucks jk it's really nice uh but not he didn't have to go back before he bought a toy for himself a jaguar xk 120 oh dude i'm gonna park in front of the victorian now dude (laughs) at the time it was the fastest production car in existence clocking an incredible for the time 136 miles per hour at the proving ground in belgium he'll stow the car in the bowels of the queen mary which is now parked in long beach and shipped off to new york city when he landed, Phil drove the new Jag all the way from New York to Santa Monica, and he went right to Bungalow. <laughs> uh, but before that, he stopped in Indianapolis to catch the Indianapolis 500. Hmm. He had gained a lot of knowledge in a short time in England, and he returned to his home a different, more confident person. Oh, I like that. Ironically... It was here in America that Phil would meet the man that would jumpstart his racing career after his alternator kills his battery. Luigi Cinetti was an Italian race car driver, mechanic, and salesman. He was capricious, outspoken, and generally had Jack Nicholson vibes about him. He was one of the select few that Enzo Ferrari trusted. 
They had met as Alfa Romeo team drivers in the 1920s, but went their separate ways during Mussolini's rule. Because uh, Enzo was hanging out at Mussolini's, at the, at the party's house. He wasn't a fascist, though. Wasn't a fascist. Some books claim, but he did hang out with Mussolini and associates. Dude, that doesn't mean just anything. Just a coincidence. It's just dude, a thing. Just a, dude, anyway. Uh, Porsche was on Hitler's plane, but he's not a Nazi. Oh, just because they share meals and like take a lot of vacations together, that doesn't mean they're friends. I take Nazi. strangers on vacations all the time. Okay, I take sure. enemies on vacation. Technically, they're blood brothers, but that doesn't mean they save the... Share the same political views at all. Look, just because we tried to resurrect Beelzebub at an altar does not mean I know the guy, okay? <laughs> just because we unleashed Hellboy yeah. doesn't mean yeah. that we're bros. We took a little trip to a rainy Italian island off the coast and made a big machine with the weird Nazi guy. That doesn't mean I'd like him. Hey, listen, just because we fought Captain America together eight times doesn't mean we're pals. Anyway. Anyway, uh, get and, off my dong. Yeah, so during Mussolini's rule, Enzo stayed in Modena, while Luigi Tonetti ended up in the U.S. getting citizenship and selling Jaguars in the States. After the war, Cinetti visited Ferrari at his partially bombed out factory at 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve. He found a beaten down Enzo in an abysmal little apartment. He had a worn leather chair, a single dangling bare light bulb with a fireplace as the only source of warmth. Enzo told Luigi that he was going to manufacture machine tools and that there's no market for sports cars anymore. Luigi disagreed telling him that he would just be a cog in the government's industrial machine. But if he made cars, he would be triumphant. Then, Cinetti made Enzo a promise. You are making them, and I are selling them. <laughs> <laughs> With his new connections overseas, Luigi assured Enzo that it wasn't Italy's economy he should be concerned with. The U.S. had half the world's wealth after World War II, and 60% of all cars on Earth. Enzo thought about it and decided to take a chance. Three months later, the Ferrari Tipo 125 rolled off the assembly line. The wildest part, like, the Formula One cars at that time were actually, like, 10 years old. Uh, they were, like, well before pre-war racing because all of the war had taken place. So that was the reason why that they, like, you had super, super outdated machines actually competing at the top of the world championship series, but we just like Whoa. think of them as being the best ever. That's bonkers. So yeah. like, the war ended and they were like, we better dust these things off. And yeah, they, that's pretty much it. Like, yeah. oh, this is the only thing we have to race. We can't, they didn't have the supplies to build anything new. We just bought out the, bought out the old guns. Whoa. Dang. That's crazy. That's cool. Like they don't like start. You go, I got my F1 car back up. <laughs> <laughs> Enzo Ferrari put horsepower over everything else. In his words, winning was, quote, 80% engine strength. I don't care if the door gaps are straight. When the driver hits the gas, I want him to his pants. <laughs> <laughs> he had fallen in love with that's the... That's a quote. That's a direct that's a, quote. That's a quote. He had fallen in love with the song of 12 cylinders, as he put it, during the First World War. Huge V-12 Packards used by the U.S. Marines rolled through his town. So when it came time for him to make his own engines, he chose this layout. 
The large banks of cylinders necessitated a longer hood, and the iconic bacchetta shape that defined early Ferraris was born. Dude, so everything, even Ferraris, is because America's cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the iconic prancing horse logo was chosen to honor ace pilot Francesco Baracca after his parents suggested it would bring Enzo good luck. Francesco displayed the horse on his plane before he was shot down in a World War I dogfight. I'm not going to say that's good luck. Yeah, <laughs> kind of the opposite. <laughs> not good but luck. it looks cool, so that helps a lot. It's a great logo. Yeah. Luigi knew that Enzo wouldn't be able to produce the cars he wanted unless they had a revenue stream other than racing. So Gennetti set up a showroom on Avenue d'Aena in Paris to sell Ferraris. And by mid-1947, the horsies were off to market. On the racing side, Ferraris were winning. Gennetti won a 12-hour race in Paris with a 166 Spider, then shipped the car across the Atlantic, where Briggs Cunningham, the guy who invented racing stripes, drove it to second place at Watkins Glen, Liz's favorite racetrack. <laughs> Whoa, you're filling in so much good Yeah, dude, that was two fun facts in like the second half of a sentence. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there are two post-comma fun facts. <laughs> 1949 saw a heroic Le Mans win where Chinetti drove all but one and a half hours of the grueling 24-hour race to convince Enzo that Ferrari belonged at Le Mans. After that, Luigi brought Ferrari to the States. Tucked away in a seedy industrial part of New York City was a nondescript brick building with a simple prancing horse logo, the first Ferrari dealership in the U.S. Compared to the Frank Lloyd Wright-designed Porsche dealership on Fifth Avenue, this was slumming it. But it sent a clear message. These cars are for driving, not for looking pretty. Although they were very pretty. Very pretty. Some of the most prettiest ever. Five months after he returned from his apprenticeship in England, Phil Hill entered a race in Monterey in his Jaguar XK120. He fumbled the green flag, and when his Jaguar wouldn't start, he had his friends push it so he could pop start it. Despite the mistake, Phil passed two cars on the first lap, and by mid-race, he had a comfortable lead. His crew held up a sign that said, Long lead! in an attempt to get him to slow down a bit and save the wear on the car, but Hill misunderstood the sign. He thought the crew was telling him that someone named Long was in the lead, so he sped up. Towards the end of his race, his brakes started failing, and feeling the need to make up time on the Phantom Race Leader, he pushed the car right to its limit and started sliding in and out of turns. Hill won his first race back by a sizable amount and gained a lot of notoriety for his tactical, all-out style of driving. Chinetti, who was regularly at sports car circuits at the time, took notice of Hill's talent. A looker for a fighter, Chinetti later said to Phil. I think this Are is you a fighter? <laughs> Here, come and sit on my lap. I think this is like just you can before. Call me a papa. I you think... can call me a Papa Chinetti. Papa Chinetti. Doesn't that have a nice ring to it? Here, have a some more gelato. You are I think this is just before Jaguar develops. Would you disc like breaks. some current candies? Yes, they are kind of a bitter and weird. This is a candy in Italy. This is what the kind of stuff we like. It's like a bad raisin. I don't normally eat gelato and candy at the same time, but when in Rome. That's how Pinkberry was invented. 
He'll use some of his inheritance from his mother's passing to finance a Ferrari 212 export from Chinetti. The previous owner, French race car driver Jean Lariviere, had crashed it while uh, racing at Le Mans, and there was a hole drilled into the floor pan to drain the oh to drain his blood after his head was cut off by a wire fence. What? <laughs> <laughs> This shit was so metal. Oh what my the heck? god. Dude, and they're like, oh, can we sell his car? Should we just get like a shop vac? No, let's just drill oh, a let's hole. Drill a hole in it. It's efficient. That's insane. The oh <laughs> Riviere wouldn't be the last Ferrari driver to suffer a fate as horrible as this, but Phil wasn't going to let those intrusive thoughts bother him just yet. He was high on his horse from his recent wins. The young lad from Santa Monica was finally behind the wheel of a car he dreamed of being in just a few years earlier. It was fast. It was exotic. And best of all, it won. Also, it was full of blood. (laughs) Bill took the 212 racing around the U.S. from Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin to Madera, California. He wanted Tory Pines blazing past his competition at 112 miles per hour. Luigi Tinetti used his connections in the racing world to help Hill and connect the young driver with private race team owners. And in 1952, Tinetti asked Hill to sit on his lap and then to drive a borrowed Ferrari in the Carrera Panamericana. The race had started just two years earlier as a way to drum up press on the recently completed Mexican portion of the Pan-American Highway, which stretches from Patagonia all the way to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. Dude, we should drive that. The race, which was modeled after the Miglia in Italy, offered car manufacturers a chance to prove their machines, speed, and reliability. It quickly became an all-out battle between American and European car makers. After spending a few days testing the car outside of Mexico City, 26-year-old Phil felt out of place. Here he was, a young, relatively inexperienced driver about to race alongside Italian drivers who had been doing this for decades. And most of all, he was scared that he'd win. What would happen if he came in first? Would he be held to that standard for the rest of his life? Phil started feeling the crushing sense of anxiety creeping back in. Most of this stemmed from my basic uncertainty of life. I just didn't feel that I belonged there in Mexico racing against all these professionals. Phil said before the race, he recalled having muscle spasms, sinus conditions, and heart palpitations. His stomach was riddled with ulcers so painful. He could only eat baby food. Wow. The Ferrari team was concerned mostly with beating Mercedes the 300 SL Gullwing was a dominant car, one of the most beautiful cars ever made. And if anything was going to beat it, it was Alberto Ascari, son of Enzo's friend and former teammate, Antonio Ascari, in a Ferrari 340 Mexico Vinale. It had more than 100 horsepower on Hill's Ferrari 212, and with Ascari in control, it was heavy competition for the Mercedes 300 SL. I'm pretty sure Alberto and Antonio died like 10 years apart or something. Like they died on the same exact day, Whoa. a couple of years apart. I was looking this up because the coincidences were crazy. They both had 13, mm-hmm. uh, 13 wins. They were born, you know, exactly 20 years apart or something. And they died exactly the same age, maybe like Weird. three weeks apart or something mm-hmm. at 36. Dude, that's straight up creepy. Yeah. 
Hope was lost almost immediately when shortly after the start of the first leg, Ascari skidded off the road at 90 miles per hour and slid 100 yards on his roof. Just like that, Ferrari's best weapon was eliminated. But it was a spat of bad luck for Hill, who had started behind all of them. We saw this battered Ferrari rolled on its side with Ascari standing calmly behind it. This shook our confidence, dude, but... Then we saw two of the Mercedes drivers undergoing tire changes by the edge of the highway. And I gotta be honest, really cheered me up. (laughs) Phil and co-driver Arnold Stubbs finished the 1933 mile race in sixth place, an unprecedented finish for a rookie. His performance showed exceptional fortitude for such a young driver. Germans, Carl Kling and Hans Klank. (laughs) No, Your names are Kling and Clank? (laughs) What? No way. Carl Kling and Hans Clank. Dude, they sound like henchmen. (laughs) Kling and Clank. Well, they finished first in their 300 SL, despite hitting a vulture on the first leg that knocked Clank out cold. (laughs) He woke up. He, like, uh, Kling was was driving... (laughs) The vulture smashed through the windshield and knocked his co-driver out. Damn. And he was like still driving and and the dude came out of it and was like, no, keep going, keep going. (laughs) Like a broken face. Earn this. Make it worth it. After this first leg, every Mercedes team like welded a cage onto the front of their cars. Bar catchers. Early. Vulture cage. Yeah. Another 300 SL took second, and Chinetti himself took third in his 340 Mexico Vinali Berlinetta. I just know that's from the name. That's an expensive car. Oh, yeah, dude. Any, like, Italian car with a country or a state in it? <laughs> yeah. Spinsov. <laughs> yep. Or, like, any any car with a, with a country in it is going to be expensive. Especially, like, yeah. Like, uh... Porsche America, RS America, that's a special yeah. car. Yeah, Italian uh-huh. car with the Tricolore on there. I got my eye on a Kia Santa Fe, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> got a city and a country. <laughs> Actually, that would be pretty cool. A Santa Fe, Canada edition? <laughs> yes, yeah. Flannel seats. Yeah, flannel seats. Goose down. Poutine mm. warmer as a little cup. <laughs> We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. The 1952 Carrera Panamericana was relatively safe compared to other years, but Ferrari racers in other parts of the world weren't as lucky. Tom Cole, driving a Ferrari 340mm for Millemiglia, crashed and died at the Circuit de la Sarte during the 16th hour of Le Mans. Charles de, Charles de Tornaco of Belgium died during a practice run in his Ferrari Tipo 500. During the next Carrera Panamericana in 1953, Phil watched as another driver hit a curb and landed upside down in a ditch. As the driver was crawling out, the car exploded. He crawled on fire until he collapsed and died right in front of Phil. Quote, I began to brood over the whole business. While I could appreciate the new attitude I had found in Europe, it did not cancel out the extreme tension and anxiety which I was building within me. 
Bill said. The anxiety came to a head when Phil drove in the 12 hours of Sebring that year. He had heart palpitations, and his ulcers were so bad he was having stomach spasms. Jeez. After the race, he was looked over by a doctor who forbade him from driving or else his stomach would hemorrhage. Phil took the advice, and he stayed in Santa Monica and went down to Earth Cafe for an organic date (laughs) shake. He he played Everclear on his (laughs) Walkman. (laughs) It was the first time in five years that Phil took a break from racing, although he couldn't steer clear of cars altogether. He used the brake to restore his aunt's 1931 Pierce Arrow. Hell yeah. The same beloved car from his childhood. It took about six months, but Hill got it cleaned up and running. Then, with no project car to keep his hands busy, Phil got bored. He took a temporary gig as a stunt driver in 1955's The Racer, starring Kirk Douglas and Bella Darby. Despite a crash that was never used in the final cut of the movie, stunt driving brought back a lot of positive feelings for Hill. Six months of thumb-twiddling later, and Hill got a letter in the mail. It was from Texas entrepreneur and Ferrari collector, Alan Guiberson. And inside, a picture of a white Ferrari 375 Millimiglia with exaggerated air vents and a big shark fin on the rear, and a scribbled note that said, Guaranteed to not cause ulcers. It was just enough to convince Hill to cut his hiatus short. Was like, this guy's probably a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) He can guarantee this. This thing looks insane, though. It does have this huge fin. It's probably like 18 inches tall. Just in the middle of the trunk, going straight up. It's it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Phil took part in the 1954 Carrera Panamericana in Guiberson's 375 (laughs) Millimiglia. This time, instead of the Goldwing Mercedes, Hill set his sights on another Ferrari driver, Umberto Maglioni. Unlike other drivers who unwound with booze and women, Maglioni had a seemingly one-track mind, which made him a focused and disciplined driver. A friend said of him, He is not wild. He does not eat much. He drinks less than he eats. He is not crazy over women. For a young Italian, that is odd. For an Italian race driver, that is impossible. (laughs) (laughs) But Maglioni's secret weapon wasn't his discipline. It was his brand new Ferrari 375 Plus, a 4.9 liter V12 powered Berlinetta that was a full 20 miles per hour faster than Hill's 375. Damn. Phil and co-driver Richie Ginther battled for first with Maglioni, keeping up despite the power deficit. Wow. Hill was leading on the last stretch, but Maglioni made up eight full minutes on them in the straights. Crap. He (laughs) took first with Hill behind by 24 minutes. The battle was hard fought, and Hill ended up winning three out of nine legs. He even received the nickname El Batalador. From the locals, which means the battler? The battler. But the biggest win for Phil was the one against his own mind. Any voice inside his head that told him he wasn't good enough to compete with these seasoned veterans was gone. And Phil realized that he was meant to race. Dude, this really is a hero's journey. Like he like starts the thing and then he goes back and like 
finds like solace and then they're like, Phil, we got a car for you. And he's like, God yeah. damn it, I'll do it. <laughs> There's like a scene at Bungalow where he's like, mm-hmm. it yeah. costs us $2,400 to have a table outside? <laughs> Not including drinks? Yeah, Phil Hill's played by Joshua Jackson from Dawson's Creek. Uh, is that oh, Kristen yes. Davis over? What What's she doing in this scene? Anyway. Honestly, Google a picture of Phil Hill because he could be played by Joshua Jackson. Dude, this is Joshua Jackson's comeback. Josh, hit us up. We know you got time, dude. Come on, Lacey. Rose Byrne. Rose Byrne and Joshua Jackson in. <laughs> so far in Hills Racing, we got to age him down like they did uh, Leia in Star Wars. So it's Josh Jackson, yeah. CGI aged down. Uh-huh. <laughs> Listen, we're gonna we're gonna save some money by hiring Josh Jackson, but we're gonna spend it on <laughs> the agent. <laughs> so this is a very expensive movie. I just want to say that right off the bat. <laughs> Joe Lotruglia plays Ferrari. Right, Wait, sorry. Joe Lotruglia? That's very yeah. funny. So far in Hill's racing career, he'd been driving for private teams, whether it was in his own 212 export or in one of Gweberson's many Ferraris. It was now time to show Ferrari that he deserved a spot on the factory team. After all, he had plenty of experience behind the wheel of the Barchettas and Berlinettas and had amassed an impressive amount of wins and podiums. But no American had ever driven on the Ferrari Formula One team. Enzo was fiercely nationalistic, some might say racist, (laughs) favoring Italian drivers for his Scuderia. Again, just because you were hanging out just be, yeah. With the fascist because... party at their hangout spot in the days of the war, <laughs> he didn't know them. Dude, just because, just because they he picked up people... a machine gun and shot, it doesn't mean him part of the war. Dude, just because they have really specific inside jokes that make everybody else feel uncomfortable doesn't mean that they're friends. And Il Commendatory didn't look like he was going to switch up. Just yet. Italian national hero Alberto Ascari was one of Enzo's favorite drivers. His father, Antonio, had driven on the Alfa Romeo team with Enzo in the 1920s until his untimely death at the age of 36. Alberto showed the same incredible courage at the wheel that his father did, winning two Formula One world championships, racing against some of the best drivers to ever do it, like Fangio and Moss. He was extremely superstitious. Ascari would knock on wood before races, and you would never catch him racing without his lucky blue helmet. One day, he stopped by the Ferrari test track on the way to lunch to see his teammate Eugenio Castellotti breaking in a car the pair were going to share for the 1,000-kilometer race. Ascari decided to take a quick spin and, unable to use his lucky helmet, borrowed Castellotti's. During a hot lap, Ascari's car disappeared behind a turn and fell silent. Castellotti ran over to see what happened and found Ascari in a field, thrown from his overturned car. I knelt it down next to him, as if to help, but by then, my friend had left me. He was the exact age his father Antonio was when he died. This unfortunate accident resulted in the loss of an Italian national hero and left Ferrari down one driver. But it, cre- but it also created an opportunity. Jeez. 
Hill finds a lot of opportunities in death. Like his mom dies, so he uses the money to buy a race car. Uh, Ascari dies. He uses the opportunity to take his job. Hill was on a freighter escorting Alan Gweberson's Ferrari 750 Monza when he got the news. A wire sent to the boat from Luigi Cinetti said, get off at Barcelona and go directly to Modena. Enzo met him at the gates of the Marinello factory and escorted Phil to a stunning one-seater roadster with the haunches of a crouching puma and the nose of a shark. What an animal that would be. (laughs) Built on a super light magnesium chassis, the Ferrari 121 LM featured a 4.4 liter inline six that made 325 horsepower. Beautiful, Phil says. Then how would you like to drive it at Le Mans with your great antagonist, Umberto Maglioni? Asked Enzo. And that is where we'll pick up for part two of this story next week. Phil Hill and the 1961 F1 season. Oh, I love a good nail biting cliffhanger. <laughs> Gets me all juiced up. So stick around for that. It's time for some listener mail, though, right now. Uh, this one is from Bodie from Iowa. Bodie. Bodie. I just watched uh, Point Break. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was got your name in there, Bodie. Bodie says, I was wondering if Nolan plans on making it up to those olive truckers out there by making a podcast about the history of the big rig. Great podcast. Y'all keep it up and have fun as always. Olive truckers. Did I slight the olive truckers recently? I don't don't understand that at all. Why are you (laughs) slighting olive truckers? I did. I did. Christina, uh, our producer, Christina, is giving me a heads up and nodding and smiling and saying, yes, yes, you did. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've actually been doing a lot of trucker content over on our second YouTube channel, Real Mechanic Stuff. If you haven't uh, subscribed to that yet, check it out. Um, but uh, we've, we've put out two videos with truckers, and I actually learned a lot over the course of shooting that, uh, just about life on the road and uh, how truckers uh, wish to be treated on the road in regards to people driving next to them. Don't drive next to a big rig. If you're coming up on one, just pass it. Don't hang out next to it. They can't see you make their lives easier, make everyone's lives easier. But I would love to do more trucking stuff on this show because it's a fascinating... I want to know what you said about olive truckers. I don't remember. Specifically. Hey, I love truckers. Uh, <laughs> He's saying, crap, I love truckers. Yeah. Yeah, you just thought he was talking about olive truckers, no. but he was saying, I love truckers. But for real, yeah, uh, yeah we should definitely do more um, trucking content on here. Very fascinating facet of American life. And American culture. So thank you, Bodie, for your email. If you'd like to hit us up, pastgas at donutmedia.com is where you can do that. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, stick around for part two of Phil Hill. It's coming next week. Liz, thank you very much for joining us. You'll be back for that one. Uh, let us know where to find you on social media if people want to uh, uh, follow you. Uh, I am at Eliz underscore Blackstock on Twitter and Eliz Blackstock on Instagram. And if you'd like to hear more from Liz, especially concerning Formula One, check out the Donut Racing Show. I'm on the show, too. And our co-host, Alanis King, co-author of Racing with Rich Energy, the book. Also go buy that. Follow James at James Pumphrey. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. We'll see you next week. 
And you know what, guys? We say follow us on social media at the end of every one of these episodes. And you know what? I don't think all of you are. So why don't you just open up your little Instagram app and go ahead and find me and Joe and Nolan, especially me, at James Pumphrey, and hit follow. That's right. Maybe some of you might be surprised when the button says follow back. Maybe I already follow you. Maybe I'm just going through our listener list, which we have. Following all you guys currently. So why don't you go and check? Maybe I'm already following you. Yeah. And if you follow them, for every person who follows me on Instagram, I will personally send them a key to my house. <laughs> uh, big thank you to our producers this week. Christina Felski and Gavin Kinzel. And our writer this week is a guy named, what's this? Joe Weber. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. I love Joe Weber. <laughs> all right. See you next week. Bye. has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.